Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I think it's like what ended up being on like the back cover of the game, where it's like you were dead and then you weren't and somebody will pay or something like that. Um, And that was kind of like the beginning idea. And then everything just started like started building off from there. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, Stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Draw Your Dice. Today's guest, I have a, he doesn't know it yet, but I have a pseudo connection through him through his novel work. He is the designer behind Lost Redoubt Games. He is the author of fantasy, horror, and sci-fi titles such as The Chronicles of Rostegove and his newest title, Black Spire. Today, I would like to welcome Benjamin Sperduto. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Benjamin, even though Ben, do you prefer Ben? Yeah, Benjamin? Ben, Ben's fine. I've, I've been trying to go by Benjamin We're, since I was like, I don't know, probably like 16 and it just never takes. It's too many syllables. So, <laughs> well, it's going to take here. Benjamin, would you give a uh, small introduction as you present yourself to the world for the folks who are listening and may not know you? Sure. So my name is Ben Sperduto. He, him. I am primarily a novelist, so I kind of came into, I've, I've kind of like existed like, uh, I guess, adjacent to gaming for uh, quite a long time. I've been playing since I was in high school, like probably like most people. So I got started you know, back in 
I guess since like the mid nineties or so. So I've kind of like gone in and out of the hobby uh, along that time, but uh, most of my creative work has been focused through fiction. So I started writing short stories. I, well, first, of course, like everyone, I tried to start writing a novel and I have like, I have like, a, I literally have a crate of notebooks of unfinished novels that never made it past the first, you know, few dozen pages and thank goodness. And then I basically I switched over to short stories because I wanted to actually finish something, which is actually a good tip for a lot of uh, beginning fiction writers. And then I kind of took a hiatus from that when I went to grad school for history and then which Russian history, by the way, so that'll come back later. And then after I was done with that, I started working on that. I finally sat down and said, you know what? I need to just do a novel and finish the damn thing. And so that was where Chronicles, of, the first Chronicles of Rostogov book, which is The Walls of Dalgorod, came out. So that was originally published through um, Curiosity Quills Press. Uh, I've since had the rights revert and I've, I've published it independently. And then, so continue writing through there and then sort of started working on various like game ideas over the years that have been uh, uh, kicking around. Actually, my... Um, I had a book that came out earlier this year called Changelings of the Dark Earth, which that book actually started out as a role-playing game. I, I, the, the role-playing game turned into my, my, my setting Bible <laughs> for the game. So every time somebody needed to pull out some kind of magical power, I would think, oh, I have this written down someplace. And then, yeah, so it's really been in the last, I guess, year or two that I've started to really dip more of a toe into doing game design uh, and sort of culminating here really in the last couple months, just trying to get a little bit more involved in online communities of gamers. So like I did the, I've heard you know, a lot of previous guests talking about the Brain Trust uh, group, which is kind of how we encountered one another. And mm-hmm. that was really inspiring just to see all these other people that are working on really exciting stuff. And that kind of gave me that final push out the door to just say like, you know what, this is ready. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> yes. And so here I am. <laughs> All Grace, I have attempted many a NaNoWriMo for people who may not know. It is in November. There is a, I don't want to say a competition, sort of pseudo competition slash like competition against yourself where you attempt to write 50,000 words of some sort of work in a, in 30 days. Yeah, it's a lot. I've never done it. It's actually. a lot. I only got to 30,000 words and then like felt really burnt out after that. It, so it's a lot of words. I'm like currently, I think, 80,000 words into the third Rostogov book. Mm-hmm. And I hit that probably sometime in October. And then I stepped away from it and I just haven't gone back to it yet. So uh, probably yeah. here in January, which I guess is tomorrow. Oh God. Um, <laughs> I guess I have to go back to it and finish it. <laughs> For those that are listening as of recording, this is December 31st. So happy new year's Eve to all of you out there Whether this comes out directly in January. Who knows? I don't because I'm still figuring this damn thing out. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, that's all that's all really in fact i think my first sort of touch point with writing to begin with was were those nano remo challenges and i think 
on a similar line of thought, I had the first thought of producing a 120,000 word novel that would be broken up into three different series and do the whole trilogy thing. And then I sort of stepped into short story territory. And then I ultimately decided that I wanted to write game games, essentially. So, Ben, I know you gave a little bit about, you know, your path in sort of starting to create games, but what was sort of the first role-playing game you played or, and also what was the first sort of game that inspired you to maybe start hacking or creating or homebrewing your own pieces of work? Yeah. So I think like a lot of people, the the very first introduction was through D&D. Mm-hmm. Yes, so often is. Although, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm I'm kind of old enough that I think my first introduction to D and D was from the Saturday morning cartoon show, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which, wow. which I have pretty fond memories of. But I had I bought a, it was some edition of the Red Box at a yard sale that I somehow convinced my mother to buy for me. I probably promised to do some kind of chore that I never did. Um, <laughs> but it was the one that had like the self-guided adventure. So it was almost like mm-hmm. a choose your own adventure. And then once you finished that, it gave you all the rules where you could like DM a game and all that kind of stuff. So like I played through the solo adventure and then kind of set it out and never came back to it. But the, so the game that I first, that was kind of, my initial contact with D&D, and I really didn't come back to it. So a lot of my formative gaming experience came from this game called Earth Dawn, which was made mm-hmm. by FASA Corporation. It was tied in with the Shadowrun setting. So my friends and I were big into both Shadowrun and Earth Dawn. And like, I, I was the person who bought Earth Dawn, so I always ran Earth Dawn, and that was kind of the beginning of me becoming the forever DM of, of the I group. Feel that. So, I, and really, I think I started wanting to make a game very early on. I think it was the combination of because that game had such a such a rich setting. And the way everything fit together was really, really cool. And I was really inspired by all the lore and the way it integrated in with the characters and all of that. And then this was also like the heyday of World of Darkness as well. So like mm-hmm. I had all of those games, you know, Vampire, Werewolf, Wraith, all those. So like I really wanted, I knew I really wanted to get into that and really wanted to write games. And, you know, took a couple stabs at writing some stuff that was just, you know, god awful. And then, uh, kind of took another stab at it with the with kind of this sci-fi apocalyptic fairies and cyborgs kind of game, mm-hmm. which you know I eventually set aside because it's like you know what this is just like broken and not working, and I set aside. That eventually became Changings of the Dark Earth later on. So mm-hmm. all that wor- no, don't throw away all your old ideas; they might come back. And then I really took uh, kind of like a long hiatus from there, and really didn't start getting back into it, and probably. You know, so it's probably been in the last like, like seven or eight years, I would say, just kind of like tinkering around with various stuff. And like, I've always been a very creative, kind of creatively driven person. Like, I was always that that game master that like I like I never wanted to run like the official like campaign setting. I always wanted to like make my own world or my own thing. And I think what was the tripping point for me was that like a lot of game masters, I was what I really wanted to do was write a novel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think once I started writing fiction on a more regular basis, that kind of like 
it freed up like a bit of a log jam that I had with game design where I could think more about the actual game as a, um, like sort of as this independent thing Mm -hmm. and really starting to realize that it's not like my story and my campaign as the GM, but it's really about the group. You know, it's a, it's about, you know, Mm -hmm. the players are, are participating in this too. And I think the, the game that really, really, really sort of blew my mind and turned me around on sort of what you could do with an RPG is a, it's a little game by, he's more famous now for Blades in the Dark, obviously, but John Harper did this game called Ghost Echo that is on, mm-hmm. it's on the 1.7 Design website, or at least it used to be. And it's, it's literally just a front and back piece of paper. And it gives you the barest outline of a setting and a resolution mechanic, and that's it. And it gives you mm-hmm. kind of all these things of like, it, like where you have to ask questions about, well, what is this? I don't know, it's not described. And so I ran that for like a couple times, and that game really really reoriented my my headspace around what you could do with a game and what you know what was really like I, I guess interesting about role playing games as as kind of a medium where it's not necessarily about this kind of like static thing like oh you get it in this complete box and here's what these characters look like and here's what the world looks like and I, I don't get me wrong I love that stuff but it's mm-hmm. a much more collaborative uh, and dynamic and much more free experience where you know, there's a lot of stuff where it's like, well, how, how do we do that? There, there's no rule for that. Well, right, right. I, well, I don't know. Just do it. <laughs> it's like, it'll be yeah. fine. It's like, well, what if it's not balanced? It's like, well, who cares? Like, just do the thing and we'll figure it out. And we're all, I, I, I think it's that understanding that you're all on the same, you're all trying to accomplish the same goal. And that you're all invested in the same in one another's kind of enjoyment. So you're not really worried about, well, what if one person is just going to like break all the rules and dominate everything or whatever. That's like, it's mm-hmm. kind of breaking like this unspoken um, agreement that you have at the table. Yeah. So I, mm-hmm. I think that is something I've been trying to think a lot more about when I'm, when I'm trying to approach games now and thinking, and, and also like how, how few rules can I possibly get away with? <laughs> Mm-hmm. in a game because I ran into this problem. I was making this game several years ago and it was, it was going to be a, it was like a fantasy pirate RPG. Cause this was, I think it was between editions of like seventh C. So like there really wasn't a pirate mm-hmm. RPG on the market at the time. And I was like, ah, oh, that's my niche. And like Assassin's Creed <laughs> black flag was like, it wasn't mm-hmm. out, but it was coming out. I was like, I'll finish it in time mm-hmm. for that, and it'll be paired up. And I reached this point where I was writing rules for how much for how much force a whirlpool could suck based on like mm-hmm. how close you were to the center of the whirlpool. And it was like, what am I doing with my life? I, I, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. This is nonsense. I have to stop this. So I always think about that moment now whenever I'm like, trying to think of rules there's like is this rule necessary because it's probably mm-hmm. not <laughs> sure sure yeah wow what a what a really really in-depth i think you might be the most in-depth version of that question ever <laughs> on the show so congrats that's awesome i love and the way you sort of talked about uh ghost echo i've not seen it and i've been to the one seven design site a couple times i mean I don't search that hard, but the way you talk about it, how it has sort of these simple 
brief setting details and brief resolution mechanics, I can see some of that influence in your design for the Revenant as well, how it doesn't have, it really doesn't have that many, I don't want to say necessarily rules to it, but like rolling style mechanics. I think there's there's three. Yeah, there's really only like, there's really only a couple a couple mechanics where where there's actually any kind of a role, and most of it yeah. is and it like I I don't like directly discourage like do like rolling, but it's I I think it mm-hmm. kind of is I think it's kind of implicit by its by its absence where it's mm-hmm. you know because most of the focus in that game specifically is on really driving home like that theme and that mood and because because really i think as as a writer like that's i've always been more drawn to really those kind of like i guess atmospheric elements of games Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. i have Mm -hmm. like i mean i'm one of those people that has like shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of rpgs that i've never played Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i bought because like it was you know the book was beautiful, and it's like, oh, this looks so cool. Like, I was asking people on uh, the Brainchest Discord the other day, there was this game called Black Void that's out mm-hmm. that I was looking through, and, like, it's gorgeous. I have no idea how I would run it. Uh, it just looks like <laughs> the setting just looks completely impenetrable, and just, like, it's so much. It's like, how do I convey this to players at the table? And, like, I don't know, but it looks beautiful, and, man, I want to play it. <laughs> So I'm trying, like, I guess what I'm always trying to accomplish is like, I want to evoke that feeling, but remove all of the barriers to actually getting the game to the table where like, Mm -hmm. cause I love the idea where of being able to look at a game and flip through it once and then say like, I know how to run this Mm -hmm. or I know where to start. Yeah. I, I really think you hit the nail on the head with some because I think you and me are very similar when it comes to RPGs we want to buy when they have a strong atmospheric condition about them. I'm like, I need I need to have this on my shelf somewhere. (laughs) Kickstarter has been very dangerous for me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I do think there is some books stretch more into the novel world book quality of stuff. So I think of things like D&D, 13th Age, maybe even Band of Blades a tiny bit, mm-hmm. but just settings that require you to sort of reread them maybe two or three times to really start to get a grasp on things. And then it never really survives once you hit the table. It's like, well, what's, you know, I think there's this misconception of that you have to be upholden to the setting of the book sometimes. I know a, a friend, a fellow GM friend of mine in my friend circle kind of gets daunted when they get asked a question about the world that they don't that they don't know and that kind of causes them to go into a stirrup. But I think there has to be sort of this What is it called? It's called, oh, like a learning curve for the setting. I think learning curves for settings have to be taken under consideration because the steeper it is, the like that's fine and good for a novel because there's always this big learning curve for the setting and what are sort of the, how you're resolving conflicts inside of the passages with whatever, especially if there's like magic involved or whatever. But when it comes to running a game, not only are you experiencing learning curve, but your players are also experiencing learning yeah. curve. And the more dense a setting is, the 
the more difficult it is to translate that to people at the table who are not reading the book. Because I can tell you how many times I've tried to run a game and be like, here's the PDF for the book if you want to look through it. No one's looked through it. And <laughs> who here now did I have reading? to go and explain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who did their homework? Yeah, no, I, um, I, I totally sympathize with that. I have, like, I, I bought this game years ago at Gen Con called uh, Shadows of Estrin. It's made mm-hmm. by this French company. And, like, the game is gorgeous. The the setting is cool. The rules mechanics are interesting, but it's just so detailed and it's so much that like, I don't even know where to start with like ramping the players up. And I feel like I would have to do mm-hmm. so much homework to even like be ready to run the game. Mm-hmm. And then now to be fair, another problem that I run into is, and I, I think where you talked about like that sort of like ramping up learning curve that a lot mm-hmm. of games do a good job of giving you like an introductory module or an adventure. Right. Um, right. Yeah. The, the yeah. problem for me is that I'm one of those people that like hates running modules and adventures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, it, it's, I, I know like they're like many of them are like well designed and they're great and people use them all the time. Like I, I just can't. It's just like, I, it's like, I, I don't want to read. I want to do it live. Right. Like, I don't want to read a book. I want to like play a game. Like, I don't want to like feel like I'm mm, shepherding exactly. the players from point A to point B to point C, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. also there's that, the issue of like, you know, everyone's run into the thing of like every campaign falls apart the moment, like the players take the first action. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, uh, a friend of mine is, he's running a DD game for his first time ever. And mm-hmm. he was lamenting that it's like, man, I did all, and he's running um, like Curse of Strahd, right? So he's got like mm-hmm. that kind of framework. And he's like, I did all of this prep work and I didn't get to use any of it because you guys went and did something different. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is why I don't prep games anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is an excellent sort of segue to start talking about. I think I think Revenant would be a good good push into here. Although I also definitely want to ex- explore Hounds of of the Sar. So I'm really really excited for both of those. But so when I was, if no if no one has gotten the art version of this game, <laughs> you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't go get it literally right now. The 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 photography direct ever since I got iron sworn, I have been really attracted to this sort of photography art direction in games and facilitating things like unsplash and pexel. Or even if you have like a subscription to some sort of fancier royalty free photography, like I think it really shortens the gap on barrier of entry when people are like, oh, well, I have to hire an artist to get custom art for my game. Like, that's not that's not true. A little bit of Photoshop skill and you can be right on your way to having a beautiful book as The Revenant has definitely shown me. It is amazing. Amazing. Oh, thanks. And, and yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Or like, I mean, the reason these books exist is because of like free usage artwork. Like, Mm-hmm. I don't even know how, I think I was looking for, and that was always a barrier for me where like, you know, I had all these ideas, like Countess of the Tsar has been around for years 
And it's just, mm -hmm. I, you know, I just never took that next step of like getting it laid out. Cause I was like, well, I don't know anything about graphic design or layout or whatever. And, and I think I was looking for images for album covers for some of the electronic music that I do. And I kept coming across these images. I was like, oh man, that looks exactly like what I'm thinking for Revenant. And mm -hmm. I just started collecting stuff and then started cobbling everything together and just kind of like, just, I wanted to see for myself what it looked like. And mm -hmm. once I started doing that and I started seeing like the game kind of coming together in that sort of layout standpoint, that really like energized me to keep moving forward and do more with it. Yeah. For, for the folks at home who may not have seen the game at all, but I do put the links in the show notes. So there's no reason why you can't at least see the cover of this game, but would you give a brief introduction of the Revenant for people? Yeah. So Revenant is, it's a, it's intended to be a two player game that you can kind of play through in the span of maybe one or two sessions. It does have rules for you can play it with more people, but it's a little cleaner with just two. And the basic concept is, um, if you're familiar with the concept of the Revenant, it's just it's a, a restless spirit that has risen from the dead to avenge its death. Um, they show up in all sorts of different media or whatever, and like probably the best frame of reference is something like The Crow. Like the crow is kind of like the classic revenant where it's been, you know, they have died, their life has been cut short unjustly and they have returned to, you know, exact terrible retribution upon the unrepentant people who have, uh, who have slain them. So, so in revenant, you, the player, it controls a, this restless spirit that's come back from the dead. They've, they've crossed over from the void and they are driven by a driven by hatred of the person who slayed them. So they've come back from the dead. They have usually one, um, a kind of special ability that they've gained from, um, from their time in the void. So they do have some supernatural powers in addition to being incredibly resilient. Like they can't be killed basically. So mm -hmm. even if you die, you get reconstituted and come back. So the idea is I wanted to try to create this idea, this sense of like the player is this relentless, unstoppable force that is slowly getting closer and closer to, um, to this moment of vengeance. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that by ultimately they're going to go directly after the person responsible for their death. But along the way, they're destroying their ambitions, their assets, so things that they've kind of accumulated, um, kind of usually through some sort of ill-gotten gains. And then there's a couple other factors that you have to contend with. So Revenant comes back and they have sort of vague memories of their life, but they do have these very distinct bonds with people who are still alive. So that kind of gives them this sort of uh, vested interest in things in the world. And at the same time, they are, as a spirit come back from the dead, they are sort of upending the natural order of the universe. So as there, are, there are these beings called gatekeepers that as the revenant continues to do things and makes itself makes its presence known these gatekeepers cross over and come after the revenant and try to drag it back to the void before it can achieve its goal and so that's mm -hmm. that's kind of the basic framework and the idea of it is that every time you sit down you'll work the 
the player and the GM will sort of collaboratively come up with the concept of the Revenant, who they were, what they valued, what they wanted to achieve, what happened to them. And they're also laying out who is the, it's called the target, is the the person that killed them. And they do this sort of by asking questions back and forth. So when things actually begin, the player as the Revenant does not know certain key aspects about the target, because those are questions that they will have asked the GM. And so kind of the the instigating kind of drive of the game is them trying to discover these things. They're trying to find out, well, what does this person value? What is this person trying to achieve? How can I foil that? And then as they start to... as they start to sort of like knock off all these bullet points, they accumulate vengeance points. And when they hit a certain threshold, then they can go after the target directly. And that's kind of the basic uh, flow of the game. And the, as you said, it has a very simple mechanic where it's just, you're rolling up two dice against like kind of like set target numbers. And then it's, so it's like, two six-sided dice, and one die is designated as the player's die, and one is designated as the GM's die. So every Mm -hmm. time the Revenant makes a test, it's really sort of accomplishing two things. It's determining whether or not they're successful in what they're trying to achieve, but depending on who, depending on which die is greater, that will allow that person to do certain things. So like if the player's die is greater, they can regain hatred points, they can add certain elements to the narrative. If the GM's die is higher, they can add certain elements to the narrative, even as the Revenant is sort of, the Revenant player is describing their success. And generally it's whoever's, the the success on the roll determines who's kind of describing what happens. So it's kind of like like a back and forth narrative being constructed between the player and the GM. Yeah, when when going through the book and sort of reading it for the first time, what I really love about the design of your not only the system because the the simple two sort of two d six of the system is 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 really awesome that you can get so much latitude out of it. But what I also love is that. When I was reading the book, I was almost playing as I was reading. And I think one thing to consider when designing your but we had um, Dira Slattery on here a couple weeks ago. And she talked about how when uh, a philosophy for lyric style games, but most games in general for certain people is that when does play begin? Does it begin when you hit the table or does it begin when you start reading the book? And I think the way I think for anyone that wants to sort of explore that in a different manner than maybe a lyric game, because I don't know if I would technically consider this. Maybe it does invoke very strong emotions like reading through it. I've always been a fan of sort of the vengeful spirit sort of movies. They scare the ever loving piss (laughs) out of me. But things like The Grudge, Shudder shit what was that Uh, like both versions of the grudge both the american and the japanese version both have those sort of revenant qualities to them because they're they don't like what's interesting is that in both of those movies and what you've sort of hit here with the bonds and the revenant is that the revenant doesn't just kill willy-nilly it doesn't just kill anyone it sometimes it has an inciting incident where it kills a random person but they're always going after pieces that are linked to 
their target in this case or enemy or whatever you want to call that person right so i think you captured a lot of that experience even through just reading the game like i started making a character i started answering the questions and i was like this is this is great this is everything and you have so much so few like touch points when it comes to mechanics as well like again you have just two dice essentially you plainly describe what is being added or minus on a particular challenge role or vengeance role or even when you're encountering the gatekeeper it's just it seems like a really simple thing for maybe like not only just two friends who love horror but i also feel like this can be really cool for people that have similar film interests in some of a way like have a really vibe with this genre i think they could just have a ton of fun just pulling different moments or scenes from those types of movies and having a ton of fun it's a ton of fun and i also love that the game is is setting agnostic like you could play this in anything you don't set up a setting for this what was your did you do that on purpose like was that something that went from the initial kernel design or was it something you sort of discovered as you made the as you produced more and more of the game yeah i think i had like kind of an implied setting in mind and it was sort of that there are i do list a few kind of example settings in the back of the book, just to kind of give a sense of like how many different, just to sort of like shake up like how you could do the game. So it's like, oh, you could do it on a space station. You could do it mm-hmm. in a castle. You could do it in a Western town. But I think I definitely had that, that kind of like crow, like dark, rainy, grimy, gothy kind of city in mind mm-hmm. as, I was, as I was going through and, and making it. But uh, yeah, I did definitely want to make people feel like it wasn't beholden to any kind of a setting. Like, cause to me, like the setting is almost like, is almost irrelevant. Cause like we've seen this sort of genre of film in, or a genre of story in like every kind of setting. Um, it's kind mm-hmm. of like a universal sort of idea. So I wanted to make sure that however I did the rules and however I presented everything, that it was very, that it could kind of be anywhere, anytime. And that to really let players sort of decide from themselves what they think would be would be the coolest because like i said it it is very like driven by by imagery yeah and it's it's funny you mentioned the the films like the grudge and that sort of thing there there were earlier versions of the game that were where the revenant was actually much more malevolent Mm -hmm. and that really wasn't a conscious design it just kind of i was so focused on the thing of them being driven by hatred and vengeance where like somebody had somebody read through the book and they were like man revenants are really mean <laughs> like <laughs> like um, like I, I think they would just like kill everybody in their path and i, I thought about it, i was like oh well i don't want that to happen and like that was where like like some warning bells kind of went off i was like oh i don't want this to be a game where like you have where you have players feeling like they're engaging in like these like like torture fantasies or something you know Mm -hmm. so so that's why there's a mechanic in there now and it was kind of a late edition called scars and the scar system is basically it's basically there to try to punish the player if they do something that is um kind of like engaging in like wanton cruelty or so. Cause mm-hmm. like the principle mm-hmm. is that like they're an instrument of vengeance, but it's a righteous vengeance, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. like when you're watching, you know, when you're watching the crow, like the crow doesn't like, you know, kill like 
the little girl that he knows or something. Like he doesn't like just like waylay everybody in his path. It's like the principle of like that kind of revenge fantasy is it like it's only the people who have it coming <laughs> that end up mm-hmm. that end up getting it. So so I had to kind of like go back and like rethink that. And I think that was a good case of like one of those cases of like where it's always good to have like somebody else look at something because like you definitely have blind spots when you're mm-hmm. when you're working on a project and there are like little things that you don't think about and like things that you take for granted that might not be coming through on the page. Mm-hmm. It, it's awesome too because as you talk about this earlier version that that depicted a more malevolent spirit as you put it. I think that the the prose and flow of words here definitely create a sense of you know a more it's almost like a more enlightened vengeful spirit like my my mission is just to end this one person and it's done like one singular goal but it's not like you're you don't also have the sense of like i'm gonna murder the first person i see who's gonna murder the first person who's connected to that person right like right maybe even a slightly less indirect or a more indirect way than direct but with the play on the bonds i think i think it's the bonds mechanic that really what i want to say lowers that level of malevolence, right? Because I think having the understanding that you as the Revenant have positive connections to people in this world rather than solely only negative connections with everyone creates a sense of, like, you as the Revenant get to pick and choose, right? And and not in, in like, a weighing the scales sort of way, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, like, death, 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 (laughs) death. It's just, you know what, there... I have this memory that says that they're my friend. I'm just going to kind of walk by super scarily and, and say, don't, don't fuck around here. Don't get in my way. Right. Yeah. It sort of puts a warning on, on the Revenant. Yeah. And originally it was the, that was represented by something called echoes where, so like Mm -hmm. the idea was like the Revenant had like echoes of its life, but it was kind of like nebulous and not really clearly defined. And the bonds were actually associated with the target. But that mm-hmm. ran into the problem of the more I thought about it, because I liked that idea that like there are things that the that like the target cares about. So if you go mm-hmm. after those things, yeah. But then I thought about it some more. It was like, well, that goes very quickly into it's like, oh, what does the target care about? They care about their child or their little brother, right, right, and it's right. like, oh, well, that person's like innocent. So like we can't, I can't create a system where like you're incentivized to go do something terrible. Because like a lot of yeah, like you know, having played D and D enough times, you know, it's like players <laughs> yeah. will find reasons to do something terrible. <laughs> merchant doesn't give us twenty percent off. Murder the merchant. <laughs> uh, but it, I think it's part of having this sort of detached language when you say things like the the target's ambitions or their assets, right? Like not their friends, their assets. Yeah. Whereas you use more connective language with bonds and hatred and vengeance for the revenant, which I really think starts to steer the boat away from that sort of villainous style of, of play. And, you know, obviously even when you make a game, you can't control every player at the table. To some extent, a couple of players may certainly go on that murder hobo spree, but <laughs> that's out of your hands. I think as a designer, 
you can trust yourself in the game that that you create. And I think Ben, you've done an excellent job in in sort of pushing against those things, and that probably also very much attributes to your novel writing as well, like your practice in novel writing. So I think that you communicate that well. Thanks. Yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think the two definitely like informed one another. Where like mm-hmm. you know, it's that idea of like wanting to evoke that certain you know, there's certain like themes or concepts or just like that general, that general mood. I mean, that's partly why those little, like there's these little pages that are just like fiction or not fiction, but Mm -hmm. they're like, it's like the thoughts of like a revenant. Mm -hmm. And like for a while I had this like notebook or it was a sketchbook actually. Cause I wanted to be able to like draw it as like, with no lines and like as big as I could. And I got like a red pen. Mm. (laughs) Yes. And and so like I had written down all these, like just like weird kind of like, you know, I'm coming to get them like kind of like quotes Mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. thought of like, Oh, well I'm going to like intersperse these throughout the book. So, and I was, I was really pleased with, with the way it came together when I finally sat down and, and started, started laying it out, which was, which was a big, that was kind of a big step or challenge kind of for me because like, I don't have really a background in any kind of like design. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, like the design for this is, and all the layout was done in like an old version of Microsoft Word because mm-hmm. Word used to have a desktop publishing Feet, or oh. desktop publishing features incorporated into it. And like mm-hmm. sometime around like 2014, 15 or something, they bro- Microsoft broke that off into a separate product. Mm-hmm. So like I still have like an old, I have like an old 10 year MacBook, 10 year old like iMac that has like Word 2011 on it. And that's like, it's slower than everything. And like, but that's what I've done. <laughs> the lay- I, you know, all the layout and stuff on for it. And once I kind of like figured out like, yeah, it was. I, I kind of had this philosophy of like, just like start doing something, and mm-hmm. like you'll figure it out. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. not in the sense of like mm-hmm. how hard can it be, but sometimes like how hard can it be, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I will say like, I gained so much more appreciation for people who do graphic design in that process. Mm-hmm. Like, I like I work in marketing as a copywriter, and like I. Just, told like the one graphic designer that I work with this is just like I, what you do is amazing <laughs> like this is just like uh, I don't even like know where to begin like how you do this all the time like it's 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 a lot <laughs> well I think that you did an excellent job an excellent job I think it's beautiful before we sort of get into Hounds of Czar, what was, why, why did you want to make The Revenant? Like, what was the kernel idea? Oh, man, that's a good question. If you can remember. Worst case scenario, I delete it from the podcast. <laughs> no, I think, I want to say it was, I think I was looking in a, in like the D&D monster manual and like reading the description of The Revenants and was like, mm. that's really cool. I would love to see a whole game about that. Mm, and I was like kind of getting into like sort of more indie games and this idea of like really stripped down mechanics and that sort of thing. And then I think I had, I had like some phrase in my head of like, I think it's like what ended up being on like the back cover of the game where it's like you were dead and then you weren't and somebody will pay or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the beginning idea. And then everything just sort of like, 
started building off from there from like some little notes here or there. And then I would get a few spurts where I would sit down and like write out a bunch of stuff and yeah, and really kind of like honing in on, you know, what my main influences were for it. So, I mean, which, which is why I have that section in the back of the book that talks about like, it's like, oh, here's like some movies that you might want to consider watching. Cause like, you know, there's so many great examples of like the revenge story. You know, and even when it doesn't involve someone that's like actually dead, it's like someone who's like Mm -hmm. metaphorically dead in some way. So I felt like there was a, I don't know, I felt like there was enough there there that I could like hang an entire kind of rules light game off of that you could, that you could play multiple times and it would be, it would feel different every time. That was like Mm -hmm. kind of one of the big things because, because it has like a natural ending point where like you've, you've, destroyed the target and you fulfilled your quest for vengeance and now you can rest and now the game's over mm-hmm. and so <laughs> you know it, it was a nice way to kind of like bookend a very like short really even like single it can be like a single session experience yeah that's amazing and it just goes to show that like really great ideas come from really obscure places sometime when you're just reading something, listening to something, watching something, you never know. Like I was in this DMC game that I'm working on. I've, my system has kind of inspired me also how to potentially do maybe like a one V one competitive, like fighting game, but as like using a deck of playing cards, like playing war or something like that. So, but that's, that's another podcast for another day, but it's really cool I think it's important for people to, because I think, at least for me in the past, I used to get to the point where I would stare at the, like, the the philosophy is that you would have to stare at the blank screen and watch the cursor blink over and over and over (laughs) again until nothing came and four hours passed. I think that it's important to be able to step away from whatever you're working on currently and draw inspiration by letting your mind go you know we always talk about those shower eureka moments but those are because you gave your mind time to sift through other short-term information that it's processing right so i think that's a really really awesome example of a kernel idea and, and there's a lot to be said about just you know just getting ideas down just writing stuff mm-hmm. out because like there'll be some times where you know like you're just trying to work through the idea like as it's coming, it's like, oh, there's like a, there's a system in there somewhere. I just can't, like, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. So, like, I've got a full page of stuff that's, like, all scribbled out and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I, I, I think the best, the best advice I ever heard as a writer was, you know, I, I can fix terrible writing, but I can't mm-hmm. fix a blank page. And so, like, mm-hmm. just get something down. You, you can fix it later. Like, no one's going to see it. No one's going to, like, hold it against you that it was a terrible... Like, no one's going to, like, break into your house and, like, hold your terrible ideas against you. So, you know, just, mm-hmm. like, just kind of go with it. And because you just have to kind of see what works. Mm. There is a... For anyone listening out there, there is... Maybe I'll link it like a like an amazon link or something well you know fuck amazon but um (laughs) there's a book called how to write smart notes that came out maybe like two or three years ago that uses this thing called the 
Zettelkasten system. It's basically a, a big note system. Short of it is, is it's a big note box system where you just take fleeting ideas, you write them down on a note card, you explore them within the next couple days, and you really start to extrapolate that data. And then when you have enough data, you start to do a project over it. Read the book. It can be a little dry, admittedly, but I think with what we we were just sort of talking about of letting other things inspire other ideas. This note system kind of works as like a second brain and has all these connective methods of saying like, oh, I thought about this idea and this connects to that and this connects to that. And now I have a full project that I'm ready to start researching. Right. Or something like that. Amazing. Amazing stuff. The Revenant. Get it. Link is in the show note to the to the, to the itch page. It'll be awesome. It'll be so good. sort of hitting the design trend lightning round <laughs> so ben in in this portion of the show i always like to get other people's opinions or insights on what trends they're seeing in the game design industry whether that be indie or main or whatever have you or maybe some personal trends that you want to see more of see less of you know stuff that's always blipping on twitter or in your discord communities and you know what even to some extent i think you could also talk about narrative design as well being a uh, novel writer if you're seeing some sort of like trends that should link up more in games or link up less in games or some philosophies. What, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on any of that? Yeah. I don't know. One, it's interesting. You mentioned the narrative aspect. Cause like one of the things that I've always found kind of interesting about the, I guess the kind of narrative sort of story game end of this end of the, uh, the gaming spectrum is that there's like a lot of those games are actually very, very rules heavy. Because they have a lot of like rules and mechanics around like who's controlling the narrative, what you can add to the narrative, and really like ways to try to guide the narrative to create like a certain experience. You know, I mean, I think like you know, it's like a PBT, PBTA games are probably like the best example, like of of how people have done this. And it's like it's, so it's always interesting to me, interesting to me whenever I hear people describe those games as like rules light or something. It's like, well, they're not, they're not really. Like, I mean, sure, it doesn't have, like, 35 different ways I can hit somebody with a, you know, with a short sword. But, like, (laughs) you know, it's, like, it has a lot of other stuff in there, too, that's, like, you know, kind of, you kind of need to get a grasp on. So, you know, I I, I guess I'm I'm always kind of torn on, because I'm I'm continually fascinated by how, how few rules you can hang a game on. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, there's this game out called by um, Lucas Rollum called Pax and Blades that I discovered mm-hmm. recently. I, I, like I literally bought this game because it advertised itself as more cocky and fantasy, and I love Michael Moorcock, <laughs> so, the old like Elric stories and Corum stories. So I immediately mm-hmm. ordered it when I saw it, and like <laughs> it, it's just it has like a resolution mechanic and like a couple other things in it, and like that's it. And then like kind of like a very basic sort of advancement system. And so I'm, I'm really interested whenever, you know, whenever people are trying to see how much, how much kind of theme and game you can really get across with 
it, with that like minimalist mechanics approach. You know, I think stuff like, I mean, this isn't like a small book or something, but like Electric Bastion Land, which came mm-hmm. out last year, is like a great example of this, where like there aren't many rules for that game at all. Mm-hmm. And it's very much based on kind of like giving you a kernel of an idea and like letting you run with it and so that like your version of that is going to be different. So I really like this trend of games that really encourage players and tables to take ownership of their game and kind of run it like run it the way they want to, like they want it to be, which is in some ways is kind of like what role playing games have always allowed us to do, but you know, I mean the fact of the matter is when the, when the game gives you a rule, there is a com- there is like a subconscious compulsion to follow that rule. And you're mm-hmm. just like, you're always kind of looking back to it. And especially in games where like, you know, you get the situation where players are like designing their characters around the mechanics. So mm-hmm. if you start ignoring rules, you're kind of like undercutting their fun to, to a certain extent. There was a, there was a podcast I listened to years ago where somebody had a great joke where they said like, I knew our group had found the new rules lawyer when the player came to me after the game and said, I wish you had known that you would be ignoring the initiative rules when I designed my character. (laughs) And I was like, oh, Oh, that that totally sounds like (laughs) this guy runs games like I do. Or I'm like, I don't know what that rule is. Just roll this. I I don't care. So so I'm I'm kind of interested in in how, or interested in how, how that's been going. And you know, it's, it's. It's it's really an exciting time for for role playing games. I mean, it's it's probably the most interesting time that I can remember in the hobby, just mm-hmm. because like the indie space has opened up to such an extent that you know you have people just diving in, you know, and coming up with like some amazing ideas, and it's just all kind of like feeding off each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I think even the I think even like the big like kind of like AAA titles or so have like have learned a lot from this and some ex- to some extent you know it's really noticeable when you look back at some of these old older games my son is trying to run my son's getting really into cyberpunk right now mm-hmm. so he was trying to run the old cyberpunk 2020 for his friends which i had and he tried like one session and was just like i i, I can't like this I, this book doesn't make <laughs> any sense to me so yeah. i he got the new we got the new one when it, the cyberpunk red that just came out which is a lot like He's like, oh, this is a lot more manageable. So I think even like a lot of those companies are kind of like learning those lessons. And I'm seeing like even some really cool ideas coming from like bigger companies, you know, like most of like the free league uh, games that they made like from the flood and uh, Tales, from, mm-hmm. Tales from the Loop, one of those two. And uh, they did the, uh, the alien RPG that just came out, which of course I had to get because Aliens is my favorite movie ever. <laughs> so I was like, I've been oh, waiting for this game yes. for 30 years. I have to have it. Um, <laughs> but that one's funny because it's like, it's this, you know, it's this classic, like traditional, like big ass gaming book that, you know, you could like, you know, kill a cockroach with. Yeah. But when you actually look at it, it's like, there actually aren't a ton of rules in this. It's pretty stripped mm. down. So I kind of like, like, I like that that trend seems to be even taking hold among, among those games. Mm, sort of intellectual property style games. Yeah. And there's yeah, a, there's a lot there's... of licensed games coming out. Like I saw like there's a Kickstarter, there's a Terminator game coming out. I was like, what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'll probably buy it of course, but <laughs> it's a, it's a cash grab. I think it's, I think speaking quickly to the sort of intellectual property rise is that, as you were saying, this is a very interesting time for 
the game design industry, period, full stop. I think a lot of it was bored or, you know, I am no historian of game design, but in my intuitions, I'd like to believe that a lot of the board game influences sort of influence the model that the last not 20, but maybe the previous 30 or so years had when it came to designing a, a tabletop game and Dungeons and Dragons, Chainmail, stuff like Earth Dawn, and what is that King Arthur game? Oh, Pendragon. Name of Pendragon, thank you. Those styles of games are heavily crunchy, everything is rules, and that could potentially be from board games because board games have to be heavily, heavily structured crunch and rules to operate. Like they have a different design pattern, right? Whereas role-playing games can have a little bit more of a loosey goosey feel to them. Yeah. So I think it's, it's interesting. And because of this accessibility that everyone can produce games, I think there are certain fantasy properties, you know, things like, the Marvel universes, DC. I I know a person who is making a Hyperlight Drifter game, which is which is an indie game off of Steam. I've seen a DMC board game. Like just a lot of these different companies. Like okay, this is just another avenue for us to make a fifty percent cut on when yep. when the time comes. Right. Like they're sort of investing now for later. Yeah. But yeah, the, I, I will say that. More, that I will say that a lot of the like there does seem to be like a higher like quality threshold. With a lot of these mm-hmm. licensed properties, like they're not mm-hmm. quite the cash grabs that they used to be, you know. Whereas, like even like twenty years ago or so, like I've got a copy of like a D twenty version of the Wheel of Time, which is basically mm-hmm. like D and D with the serial numbers filed off. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that like that does seem to have like I, I think that you're getting a, and that could just be you may have a generation of game designers that have much more respect for the properties that they're working with, you know, mm-hmm. but regardless of like how he feels about the, you know, the companies cutting the checks on these things. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, and to also speak more mainly to this philosophy behind what is sort of considered a, a rules light game, right? Because you know, my first touch point was D and D fifth edition. And that uh, in my, in my opinion now is a heavily crunchy game. There's a lot of moving pieces when it comes to combat and stuff like that. And when my first game that I sort of broke off from that was with blades in the dark, which while is not a tactical combat map game is still a very crunchy game. There's a lot of moving pieces to that entire system when it comes to actions and stress and trauma and position and effect and having that conversation items and that whole thing and remembering what you can do and use. And then you throw abilities into the mix and it it becomes a lot. And then that's not even considering like talking about the crew macro game and remembering those sets of rules. So I think there is this interesting thing where some games sort of tag on or people. I don't think it's always the the game designer. I think sometimes it's people that compare it to maybe D&D as their first game and say, this is a rules like game. Just because it doesn't have a tactics map doesn't necessarily mean that it's rules like I think Revenant is a perfect example of a rules like game. I think I think powered by the apocalypse style games can be a little bit rules like because you're only really focusing on the two dice and then interpreting those questions. Right. You just have to remember the questions. (laughs) But, you know, again, stuff like Blades in the Dark, even something like like Iron Sworn and how it sort of even though it's a simple dice rolling system, it can get crunchy when it comes to how moves influence your milestone track, how it influences how you're doing against them, like it's clock based system uh, or systems in place, figuring out which moves interact there and remembering initiative for combat and stuff that can be a little crunchy. So is that necessarily a rules like game? I don't think there's a hard, a, a hard answer for what is determined to be a rules light. I think it's what you're bringing up is important to recognize that, your game may not be as rules light as you think it is just because it doesn't have a tactics board. I think, right. you know, once you start writing your, I don't know, 50th rule for how to interact with inanimate objects, <laughs> maybe there's a consideration to cut it back a little bit. Hey, I've got a pile of GURPS books over here if you want to play that game. <laughs> <laughs> They've never yes. been used, so I, maybe we can break them out. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's apparently a lot of GURPS fans in the in the brain trust. I um, loved GURPS. And, I've 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 had the books for years. I have never run a game, but I, I always liked it. So, <laughs> brain brain trust friends, get Ben into a GURPS game. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Are there any other trends that you want to sort of point out or anything that you're personally wanting to let people know about in the listening world? Uh, those are kind of the biggest ones. You know, I feel like I'm still, I'm kind of just like at the beginning of exploring this, this indie space in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know, now that I'm trying to get more involved in it and thinking about, um, you know, like kind of next steps that I want to do and kind of seeing what other people have done and kind of like putting that path together. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey.
great. Well, let's let's talk a, a little bit about Hounds of. I'm gonna. I heard you say it different ways. I believe it's Czar. Czar is that correct? Yeah. Czar with a human Z. <laughs> Got it. Or an English. You will Z. often see it spelled C Z A R. Mm-hmm. This is that's the that's the version I've seen. This is not incorrect, but I, but I I like T S A R. Great, great. Just the uh, yeah, transliterations, so, blah blah blah. You know that stuff. <laughs> I see uh, a little bit of those Earth Dawn. If I'm remembering correctly, Earth Dawn has a similar roll under system. Is, is that correct? Or maybe I'm thinking of Pendragon. It might be Pendragon. I think uh, Pendragon that. might be. I think yeah. the. It's funny, the basic resolution, the 3D6 system is, uh, speaking of GURPS, it basically mm-hmm. uses the GURPS resolution system, where it's the 3D6 hurt, and hurt. you're rolling under. And like, th- this game's a bit, it's a bit more traditional, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where it's, and the, so the basic concept for Hounds of the Czar is that you are a member of the Aprichnina, which is kind of the secret police of Ivan the Terrible in the 16th, in 16th century Russia. So you are running around medieval Russia looking for heretics, traitors, and of course had to add in like the supernatural element. So, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's kind of a concept that we've seen done many times before historically, like the kind of mm-hmm. like historical mm-hmm. monster hunters sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it also kind of incorporates this idea of um, suspicion, you know, who can you trust? Who is a, is the czar actually bad? Maybe we're yeah. doing bad things. Do we know we're doing bad things? Uh, and, you know, and it's, it, it, this game really came out of, this guy, This game was kind of like hodgepodge and kind of how it was born mm-hmm. because I wanted, I wanted to do a game set in kind of medieval Russia because as mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, my, my master's is in Russian history. So I studied mm-hmm. like 17th century Russia, like the era, like right before Peter the Great. So like Peter the Great's father, Alexei, was the kind of the period where I looked at. And so, you know, I've, Ivan the Terrible obviously like looms large through mm-hmm. any aspect of Russian history. So, and he like, he, there's this period of time where he basically dis, he basically disbands or dis, disowns the nobility the, you know, all of government officials strips them of all their titles, all their authority or the power. And he creates this, what's kind of like considered a state within a state called the Aprichnina. And it's, it's these guys, it's real unclear from the historical record what the purpose of this group was. Uh, and it's been reinterpreted in multiple different ways. It's great because like Soviet historians like hold it up as like, hold like Ivan the Terrible up as like a proto-communist who was like creating a, a who was creating this like military arm of the prolet of the of the the pre-proletariat to strip away the nobility of their power and this kind of stuff, which like it doesn't hold up to any scrutiny like most uh, Soviet history history. But yes, yeah, so like they're these guys that like they ride they basically ride around Russia garbed in black. They have like wolf's heads like on their like saddles they carry these brooms around that are supposed to symbolize them like sweeping away the czar's enemies and like they kind of just ride around terrorizing people (laughs) and this all happens in the middle of a war and it's like 
it like the whole story is bonkers. Like it doesn't make doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, but I wanted to capture kind of that that unique moment in history, and kind of like the the thematic touchstone for the movie is or for the for the game is drawn out of the movie Ivan the Terrible, the uh, Sergei Eisenstein film that's been like you know, you've seen like if you haven't seen the movie you've seen like still shots of the movie or clips of mm-hmm. it from somewhere it's just this very visually striking film so I kind of wanted to like lean into that <clears throat> lean into the history and also have kind of this like. Monster Hunter game, <laughs> kind of wedged in the middle of all of that kind of stuff. So like, it's a bit of a mishmash in that scent. And when I was putting the book together, I use, all of the artwork that I used is like sort of like Russian artwork from the 19th mm-hmm, century mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of give it that sort of feel and got like a, like a weathered paper kind of look to put on the background of everything. And so that was, that was kind of how that game came together. So it's, it's, it was really fun just kind of leaning into that that period of Russian history. And again, my um, so my first two books are set in a fantasy world that's basically like, it's a Russian Game of Thrones is kind of how I describe it. Mm-hmm. So like everything's very kind of Slavic feel, the, like the magic and creatures are kind of drawn out of like Slavic folklore sort of thing. So it was, mm-hmm. Hounds of the Tsar was kind of like a natural stepping stone into to kind of marry those those interests together. Yeah, I think again when I when I first greeted Ben today off off mic, off mic, <laughs> off air, I'll figure out a term. Uh, both The Revenant and The Hounds of the Tsar are dripping with character and thematic just in their design alone. Both, you know, things like the font and the textured paper and the use of public domain art pieces is really visually striking. It's a, they're very, very pretty books for sure. And I think you also posted in the brain trust. You just got a, a print copy of hounds to like, look at, to like play with. <laughs> yeah, I did a, I actually uh, ordered a print copy of both hounds and revenant from just from Lulu. I just mm-hmm. kind of threw it on there. It's like, I, I, I just like from a moment of vanity, like I just wanted to hold it in mm-hmm. my hand. <laughs> I didn't really have any plans to do like a physical distribution uh, for them. But now that I kind of see them, now I'm thinking, well, maybe I should look into how to do this because this is really cool. Aww. It'll run into problems though, because like the format is this is partially a byproduct of me not knowing what I was doing with my layout. Mm-hmm. The byproduct or the, the layout is done in like conventional, like eight and a half by 11 paper. So mm-hmm. I can't really print it as a zine because everything will be all squashed. So mm-hmm. I, it's like, so that's why like, it's cool. Cause like the books came out really big, but you know, if, if I really wanted to like to distribute it in another format, I would have to go back and kind of like redo everything. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I may look into like what it would cost to do a like a limit like a print run of them, and then mm-hmm. you know maybe like do a Kickstarter or something and try to like you know see if I can get uh, see if I can get the funds to like get those printed out. But I don't know. That's that's kind of an up in the air idea at the moment. Sure. Sure. Now, I know looking through Hounds, like you're talking about, it uses sort of a basis of the GURP. I'm not familiar with GURPS. I've not seen any GURPS books, but as you said, it's sort of a basis off of the GURPS system. That's Is that correct? Just, just that kind of that main, like, action resolution, like the right. like the rolling ticket, because, like, there's no, like, I didn't want to do, like, target numbers or anything, so it's like, yeah, you mm-hmm. roll the dice, you roll under your stat, get under it, you're fine. <laughs> 
And then there's, so you have like, each character can pick like a certain number of abilities and that basically just lets you re-roll your dice on every test. Mm -hmm. One thing that I stole, blatantly stole from um, Into the the Odd and Electric Bastion Land was the concept of just not rolling for, in combat, not rolling to hit. Mm -hmm. You just, Mm -hmm. your weapon has a damage die and you just roll the damage die and if you have an armor die, you roll that and that's it. That's all there is in the, the combat system. Because I didn't want to get into like a thing of like, like it's like oh well, what stat is using for, do you use for combat? Right, right. So like it, it's interesting because it does have the, this byproduct of like, like no matter how your character is sort of built, like you can still be effective in a fight. Mm-hmm. But since everything is hitting automatically, like fights go quick <laughs> and they can yeah, go real yeah. bad real fast. <laughs> So maybe well, I think that so maybe getting into a fight not the best idea. <laughs> well, I think that plays to sort of the because w- even though there's a supernatural element to this game, I think because it has this touch point of real historic value to it, having that lethality come so rapidly and so concretely with factors of just a weapon versus someone's armor is I think adds to the flavor of the game. I don't think it detracts in any way. Maybe for someone who likes a little less lethality in the game, someone who's a little bit more precious about their characters. <laughs> right. I, I don't know if this is the I don't know if this is the game for them, especially with the the sort of social deception mechanic you also have in there, the the loyalty system. Like your character's coming to an end one way or another, whether you like it yeah, or not. Yeah, you, you, you could potentially be like tried for treason and like gone. <laughs> yeah it, it could end quickly but the yeah and that's kind of like a byproduct of and i've i don't know that i've ever i don't know that i've ever like read like a combat system in an rpg that i was like totally happy with right because they they always tend to get like they're very it's in most traditional kind of rule books like the combat chapter is like the biggest chapter and it's where most of the mm-hmm. rules are mm-hmm. but it, it kind of flies in the face of and I, this is something I've always tried to stress in writing, writing fiction, is that like when violence happens, it happens fast. It happens faster than mm-hmm. you think, and it happens, it's sloppier than you think, and it's like, it goes wrong <laughs> really quickly. So I always, that's something I always try to convey in, you know, I'm writing fiction, and so it's, it's something that, that I also try to bring to, to games as much as I can. I think you you nail it. The two things that I find really interesting about this game, one is sort of this plot twist dice you have, the czar dice, which is really cool. And then I also really like that loyalty system that I, I don't think I've ever seen someone like use a social system like that where it's literally like make or break for your character. Would you would you touch on both the the czar dice and that loyalty yeah, system? Yeah, so the concept for the czar die is basically, it's kind of similar to like something that you would see like a like a Benny in like Savage Worlds or like the mm-hmm. um, like previous versions of D&D have used like, I can't remember if they called it like a hero point or something. But essentially like it's a, it's a special die that you can add to a test. And the, the idea behind it was that I wanted every character or every player to always have in their mind what is their connection to and their standing with the czar. 
because mm-hmm. the weird kind of byproduct of, and really kind of like every royalty society, high society or social structure works kind of this way, like all kind of power and authority flows from a single person. And Mm -hmm. your proximity to that person and your relationship with that person is incredibly important in your your social status and your professional status. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that I wanted to make that kind of almost like a mystical connection that the Aprichniks have with the czar. So you can invoke the czar to to accomplish something in his name, but if you screw up, <laughs> uh, you get a, <laughs> it goes against you. There's, mm. you start to see, you suffer a uh, black mark. And if you get too many black marks and you start to suffer this corruption, which can like mutate you and kind of stuff. Cause remember the czar might be not good. <laughs> and then, so the, the trust mechanic was m- really devised where I, I, I wanted to have some kind of way that players were constantly watching one another and like sort of like mm. taking notes. So it has a little thing of like on each session you have kind of like a trusted or suspect or a suspicion track. So like if someone does something that you think it's like, oh, that was that was on the up and up, that was good. I'm gonna give them a point on the trusted. It's like, oh, why did you just do that? Hmm, mm-hmm. sounds suspect to me. Marked out on the <laughs> and on top of that, there's when you make your character, you every character has a secret. So there's mm-hmm. something that would cause you trouble if and you can either all of the tables in the game, it's you can kind of pick something off the top of your head, or you can just roll on a random table. I'm I, I love random tables, especially for stuff like this. So like, you know, your mm-hmm. secret might be that like you sold secrets to a foreign spy. And so you're always kind of worried that somebody might figure that out. And of course, the GM knows what your different secrets are. So they're kind of like mm-hmm. trying to like walk you into traps and so, and so forth. Yeah, and egg you the on. other players are all watching you. And like, but one of like kind of the bad things about the, um, the whole trust system is it, it's kind of arbitrary. So mm-hmm. you very easily could kind of manufacture a case against someone and the Mm -hmm. way you determine when you actually do get to the point where, and it takes several sessions before like you've accumulated like enough suspicion where you can accuse somebody. When you make that accusation, you basically like make your case. It's like, well, I saw them do this and I know they did that and this and this and this and this and this. And you can kind of like cajole people around and like you can kind of make some stuff up here or there, embellish some things. Because I wanted to reflect this idea of like when people got accused of something, it usually was some kind of trumped up charge. You know, it's like, because mm. oftentimes it's the most loyal people who are the ones that end up getting dragged off to the gulag. So mm. Slipping into like a later Soviet reference. But like, you know, it's... And like, th- there's this great, there's this great like refrain that you see in a lot of like Soviet writing or so- a lot of like contemporary Soviet sources where like, you know, someone's, their uncle's been dragged off by the, you know, by the secret police or whatever. And like, there's always this refrain where people are saying like, if Stalin only knew what was happening. Meanwhile, Stalin was the one who signed the guy's arrest warrant. And that mm-hmm. kind of similar dynamic occurs with, in like Tsarist Russia, where, you know, the like a lot of people are generally deferent, not deferential, but they kind of like hold the czar like kind of up on this pedestal of like, well, if like the czar only knew what his ministers were up to, 
you know, and, and like, meanwhile, the czar mm-hmm. is the one who, like, signed off on, like, massacring all these civilians. So it was kind of like, I wanted to play into that thing of, like, yeah, even if you are, your ability to avoid getting, like, hauled off to the gallows is partly about staying on the straight and narrow, also partly about being able to throw under pe- other people under the bus, and also about kind of, like, this sort of performative loyalty, so you're kind of mm-hmm. like balancing those things on like, you know, it's this uneasy tripod of, of self-interest, I suppose. <laughs> also, while I, a werewolf uh, is trying to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick aside, quick aside. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I find this system, first of all, it's the first of its kind that ever, and maybe maybe to some extent other games might might do this in a what I feel is a less direct way. But what I love about this, you know, a lot of, I think for a lot of D&D games, there's always the king or the tyrant or the queen or the kingdom or something like that. And D&D doesn't really have a good way of handling those relationships with those people. Yeah. And I think this almost, as you put sort of supernatural connection to the czar, but also you could play that in a non-supernatural way. And if you are a group of adventurers who are loyal to your king or queen or, or, or royal member, I just think the system does political intrigue in a way and and accomplishes it in a way that, that I'm not familiar with from any modern game I've, I've touched base with. And there are games that have like moves for, you know, if you're, if you have a bond with this person gain plus one to your role or whatever. But I think this manipulating this system is a really good way to sort of field just just that royalty political intrigue version of a game especially with having this the stakes placed in it where in this game like you're gonna you're gonna die if you've done (laughs) ill towards the czar right but you could be sent in a less lethal game you could be sent to the dungeon you could be ousted from your connections you could be not a part of that loyalty structure anymore and so you you now have a story where you have to find a new organization or group or bond to belong with i think i think it really hits the nail on the head when it comes to sort of that political intrigue story or at least that portion especially for your game yeah the i will say the kind of the my like my biggest touchstone for working on this kind of system was there's a pair of games came out years ago uh, called Cold City and Hot War. They were by uh, mm-hmm. Contested Ground Studios, or the it's the same guy that did A State, which is coming back. I'm super excited about. And the the premise for Cold City was, which I was more familiar with, was you were in a group of it was like a multinational police force in like Cold War Berlin. And, of course, you were investigating, like, weird Nazi stuff and monsters and that sort of thing. But, like, every member of the group was a different nationality. And they mm-hmm. all had their own goals and, like, national goals and personal goals. And there was a there was a trust mechanic that if you trusted, however much trust you had in another person, you gained, like, a benefit on your die rolls on anything involving mm-hmm. them. Or you could like give them like bonuses. It was like that. So that was kind of like the genesis of of wanting to do that, manipulate that or create that kind of a system. And I I haven't seen it done much, which is always um, seem kind of strange to me. I liked I like how like Apocalypse World does like those connections between characters a lot of times. But like I remember, I think it was Dungeon World that has a um, like you kind of outline like 
Like, oh, I know this person and I have a, something with this person. Oh, I think I lost you. Hey, hey. Have I got you? Hey, hey. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know what happened there. (laughs) No, you're super good. Uh, You already pre-warned me, and I I am here to chill. (laughs) The last thing I heard was that the sort of the cold city, which you were more familiar with was the inspiration for the loyalty system. Yeah. So cold city had this system where like each character had like a certain like trust level that you tracked and it would like kind of go up and down throughout the course of the game. And then Mm -hmm. that would allow you to like add, I think you added dice to someone's role. So if like Mm -hmm. you were helping someone that you really, that if someone uh, you really trusted was helping you, you would get a bonus. But if it was someone you didn't trust, you'd get a penalty. Um, So it was Mm -hmm. a, and since everyone was a different nationality, there were kind of these built in prejudices that everyone had Mm -hmm. to navigate. So it was a, it was a cool game. And I kind of wanted to, I kind of wanted to get something like something kind of like that, which I, I don't really see a whole lot. And a lot of games, like you had said. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm yeah. glad that it like kind of comes across in there. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really sparks some ideas about you know. There are still some of my friends that in my friends are gold that you know I constantly try to kind of get to play other games outside of D and D, but right. a lot of them try to build in this sort of political intrigue between guilds or warring factions or whatever have you, and they don't know whose side they're playing on. So I think something that kind of sparks from this loyalty system could be very beneficial for people who like that style of war game or or you know political intrigue, whether that be with royalty or guilds or factions or whatever have you. So that's very cool. It's very, very cool. great design inspiration so far ben i i I hope everyone that's that's listening to this has picked up a copy of either of these games i think there's a lot to learn from the choices and philosophies and principles you have put through your games put into and both into and through your games. But what are you, what are you, is there anything you're working on, excited about? And you can even, if not a game, because I know that you are, as you said, a a copywriter and also a a novelist. So you're probably not always working on games at every, every point of the, of the year. Is there any one of those, a novel or a game (laughs) are are you working on that you're excited about or just coming out with? Yeah, it's kind of a, um, kind of like always juggling between multiple different things. So I, I, I do want to try, I have a game that I'm trying to get tidied up and ready to go for zine quest this year. Cause I've this, I, I think I, I first learned about zine quest just really even like thinking like the past six months or so. Cause I missed it the first couple of times mm-hmm. around. Cause I hadn't really gotten into the, gotten into that, that sector of the indie space. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking around for what ideas I had that would fit within that format because mm-hmm. usually like things tend to like grow 
<laughs> beyond that a, l- a little bit. Like I'm mm-hmm. working on one game that's called Simulacrum. That's basically like the Matrix crossed with Dark City, because it's mm-hmm. kind of astonishing to me that no one's really done a a matrix style game. Although as I started working on it, I realized why <laughs> there is some definite problems. <laughs> yeah. But so, so there's that. And then I, this other game that I mentioned earlier on about this kind of fantasy pirate game that I was working on, I'm kind of repurposing that into um, something that's, <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. It's more like, it's like water world because mm-hmm. I, I guilty pleasure. I love that movie. So it's uh, awesome. Great. So it's kind of like a bit of like a, like a, like a Mad Max on water, like hex crawl. So working on that, but the, the game I'm sort of prepping for zine quest is called Weirdwood, And this is a game that I really got the idea for during a trip I made to Finland a few years ago. And it's again, it's like the idea is like nothing revolutionary. So it's like kind of like a hidden world type game, you know, just beyond perception. There's this like primordial forest that is filled with all sorts of things. It's like kind of feeds on the dreams and uh, imagination of humanity. Also, there's like kind of like doppelganger copies of people hidden away Mm -hmm. in this forest and so that was kind of the basic premise, and it started out as a book idea, then also, and then turned into like a graphic novel idea, and then I thought, well, like, well, this is just a role-playing game, so I should just make it a role-playing <laughs> game. So the idea for the role-playing game, though, is that it's kind of similar to the way that uh, Revenant kind of gets created at the table every time you play. Mm-hmm. Um, this game starts out by asking a bunch of questions, And it kind of was inspired by the times I ran Ghost Echo, which the way Mm -hmm. I ran that game was I would kind of sit down with everyone at the table and then I would go around and there were, there were all these like terms and concepts on the, on the sheet. And I would just ask the table, it's like, okay, what is this? What it, Mm -hmm. who are these people? There's these kind of creatures. What are they like? And kind of like taking down notes as everyone said all that kind of stuff. And then like rapidly like shaping that into a, into like a setting for everyone to just go play in. So everyone kind of like collaboratively creates the world that you then dive into and play. So the concept Mm -hmm. for Weirdwood is that this idea of like this forest just beyond perception exists everywhere. And it's different in every place. So when I sit down in Florida and come up with what the weird wood looks like, this is what it looks like where I live. And this is what kind of creatures are there. And this is how magic works here. But someone who's playing the game in Wisconsin... I don't know why Wisconsin came to mind, but someone who's playing in Wisconsin. <laughs> Shout out to Wisconsin. <laughs> I've been watching too much news, apparently. Someone who's you know, playing in Wisconsin, the, it might be very wintry. It might be you know, different kinds of forests, different kinds of creatures. Magic mm-hmm. might work differently. Mm-hmm. And then I, what I kind of had in my head was that it would be cool if everyone who kind of created their setting could sort of have like a little like sheet or something that they could quickly be filled out and that I could have some way of them like sharing that so that everyone could kind of see what everyone else's worlds looked like. And mm-hmm, if you kind of mm-hmm. didn't feel like doing the whole like prep thing, you could just go grab one and be like, oh, this is like a cool weird wood that's here. Mm. This is a cool weird wood that's there. And the, like the game system itself is kind of, it, it's, 
it's pulled, it's, it's kind of like the system that's used in Lady Blackbird, where there's like mm. a pool of dice in the middle of the table, and you kind of can take dice from the pool, and there are ways to refresh your pool, and that sort of thing. Mm. So it's, I, I need to kind of like sand off the rough edges on it a little bit, but that, that's, that's kind of the plan now. So that'll, I'll probably be prepping that for, the, for a Kickstarter in ZineQuest, and We'll see how it goes. It'll be the, my, my first venture into, into Kickstarter after, after kicking around it for a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that concept. I've, I myself have been thinking more and more of... This mostly spawned from a conversation about fantasy names with a couple of my friends, but being uh, a black American, I don't really feel a, any sort of connection from the what do I want to say, like proposed names that fan, like in D&D, what a dragonborn's name is like, or what a dwarf's name is like. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it, it all feels very Eurocentric, right? Oh yeah. So in my mind, I wanted to think about games that could be played in a modern setting. And I have this idea that's always kicking around in my brain about using the literal place you live as your fantasy map almost. So getting like a, a copy of the city schematics of like Cleveland or or Dover or Denver or anything like that, Tokyo, whatever have you, wherever you live. And sort of creating this pin system that says, okay, what does sort of like the negative fantasy version of this world look like like flip flip your entire city upside down oh, and put yeah. magic monsters in it and then start to do that same sort of thing where like you could have some sort of forum collection space where like oh wow that's really cool i want my players to like travel on a cruise and land in the bahamas and this is what the bahamas like fantasy version looks like yeah. right yeah i love that so idea. i think that stuff would be really cool well that because it, it, it kind of ventures back into like into the old like old school world of darkness because like back mm. when like back when vampire first came out and kind of before it got taken over by its meta plot and became like mm-hmm. superheroes with fangs like they're like kind of the like the unwritten expectation was that you would play vampire in your city or your town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. was really, really cool. And th- yeah. Yeah, they kind of got away from that really quickly for like obvious business model reasons. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that idea where like, you're just kind of like making where you are weird. <laughs> yeah. Like your local donut shop is, I don't know, housed by a, a troll in the, in the negaverse that they're still making donuts. You know what I mean? Like whatever have you. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think something like that would be really fascinating and i think would lower the barrier to entry on like someone feeling successful when they create a world bible because i think well at least for me part of the hiccup is like i think you always get trapped in the sense of like an interesting topography for your world like where are the mountains and the (laughs) trenches and like where are the castles centered are they in the mountain by the river do they live in the forest right like it's all these i think it's more these topography what do I say barriers for creation where like if you literally had your own city map and knew okay this is where our terminal tower is what like what does that inspire what does the terminal tower like it's a, making your city the prompt question for setting creation yeah. I think is is what's very powerful what I, I think the great thing about that is that like one of the things that people don't think about enough when they're designing kind of settings or cities that sort of thing is that 
oftentimes, like, there's not a good reason for why things are, or where mm-hmm. thing, or like for why things are where they are, or why certain mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. exist, because like cities are a very like ad hoc work in progress mm-hmm. oftentimes. So I think going off off of that that model would allow you to kind of reflect that kind of like that unpredictable kind of chaotic nature in historical nature. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, this is here because this was built by so-and-so, right. you mm-hmm. know, everyone thought it was a bad idea to build it there, but he went and built it there and now it's there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'd be a good way to teach like how to construct kind of a short term timeline. Right. Also, like I think you, you touch on a good point of like, you know, Polish village has been around here for, a hundred years now and we've not changed anything about it or we have changed something about it. And that can be sad for the people who sort of constructed that space for themselves initially. Right. So I think it's, it's both a great potential toolkit system for learning how to construct the physicality of a setting and also how to create the metaphysical history of, of a setting as well. I think that could, that could be really cool. And, but yeah, just to, just to touch on that, I think it's, it's really interesting that you want to create a game that elicits a, almost a, a group share component to it, a collaborative group share component to it. I think there are lots of games that are slow and you know, with the, conventions of jams on itch and everything like that and maybe jams that i'm not aware of that are not directly uh tied into itch that create this sort of share and share alike system of creation basically yeah i think it gives players you know players more of an investment because traditionally that kind of like world building thing is like the purview of the gm and you know by by kind of crowdsourcing that and like having everyone feel like they're a part of that world. Mm-hmm. I think they put a lot more thought into it and a lot more, they have just have a lot more investment mm-hmm. in the, in uh, the different and it also, and also helps you learn about your own town more than you probably would have if you were just sitting on your bum playing league of legends, right? Like I want to create an adventure around Chinatown, right? If that, if that plays into your homage at the table, then learn about it, like really get invested in learning about, okay, why are these buildings here? When did this town become erected and when did it sort of become a safe space for the people that live there? Right. Or why did it need to become a safe space for people to live there? I think it, it's just a really interesting educational tool as well. And well, so, that, yeah, probably I, that research would absolutely prompt all sorts of games mm-hmm. right off to- on top of that. Cause like, like you start digging back into history, you're like, wait, what what happened exactly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why? Why did the mayor do this? Yeah. Wow. That's those are I really look forward to those projects. I think I think this episode will come out sometime at the end of January, which will be around when Kickstarter starts to happen. So maybe by the Exciting. time, you know, we'll do a little follow up with Ben hopefully in the in the future and talk about how that creation is going. right next to the mic so everyone can ASMR this click-clack roll. Because <laughs> I don't think this would be a design show without probability involved. 
So I'm going to roll on this table here. It may be something not necessarily design written. And if you even if you don't feel like you have a ton of experience in this prompt, give anything that you think will facilitate you know, based on based on your experience, you know, all experience is valid and it's all relative to the next person listening to it. So it'll be helpful to somebody, especially me. So I'm going to roll here. Six. Roll again. Ben, Benjamin, would you give a TLDR design tip for the folks listening about publishing? And I think that this can also tie into novel works. I think it fits the same sort of creation threshold as games do because at the end of the day games are words on a page as much as they are art on the page or rules so yeah give a give a publishing tip to the to the folks at home so i would say the the great thing about publishing right now is that it is easier than it has ever been before even in just the you know the short amount of time that i've been writing fiction like it's it's changed quite a lot you know you can go from you know, finishing your manuscript to having your book for sale on, you know, various online stores, like within like 24 hours, like it's crazy. You know, (laughs) I, I think that because the barriers to publishing have gotten, have gotten so much lower, I mean, that does create, you know, the issue of like trying to like get yourself visible you know, you know, trying to like stand out from the crowd, which I think has been, that's, that, that's been the, the struggle that I've had in, in fiction is just, you know, trying to get yourself noticed. And, you know, I, I think like one aspect of that is like, however, like, however annoying you think you are being with your marketing, you're probably not being that annoying. And like, it's probably not enough, <laughs> especially when you mm-hmm. filter everything through like all the, you know, the various like social media algorithms and whatever. It's like, you know, maybe like 5% of people are seeing anything that you post, which is uh, so like, don't be afraid. But yeah, I think it's, you know, if, if you feel strongly about what you're doing and you feel uh, proud of the result, like find out what you need to do to put it out. You know, it's really easy now to do, especially, especially if you're just interested in digital distribution. Uh, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, you can have something for games. You can have something up on itch or drive through like immediately, you know? So I, I, I think that it's, it, it, it's something that you can't, that you shouldn't use as a reason not to do things anymore. You know, I have like a, like, but kind of like my personal mantra is like when you're 90% ready to do something, just do it. You know, and just because otherwise you'll spend all the time like, you know, withering back and forth of like, oh, should I do this? Should I do it? As far as I, mean, I can't speak a lot to doing like like physical publishing and that sort of thing, because I haven't I haven't done that for for RPGs and, and so forth. Like and most of the novels that I that I've had done are all like print on demand. So mm-hmm. I haven't had to deal mm-hmm. with any kind of like, you know, inventory or overhead or, <laughs> or anything sure, like that. Sure. Um but you know, there's there's tons of resources out there, and like, just don't be afraid to ask someone because all of us start somewhere. Mm-hmm. This is probably a preface for me asking a bunch of people about things on uh, <laughs> uh, as I look forward to uh, Kickstarter. But yeah, like you know, like everybody has to start somewhere, and there's like people that are like really eager to help and share what they know. So. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be afraid to ask. You're you're certainly not you. You're never the first person to ask the question. So, yeah. When I was when I first dabbled in wanting to write 
a novel or short story or anything like that, quickly the the argument I was looking on the on the interwebs, as they're called, I believe the kids call them that, that the difference between traditional publishing through a, a publisher, like a, like an accredited publisher, hybrid publishing or self-publishing. And, you know, I think part, part of that battle is that when you go traditional publishing, you may not get as much of a cut from your product, but you don't have to do all the work of the marketing and publicity and all these other, I mean, you have to do some of your own, but they help they give you tools and resources to because that's their job. They also want your book to do well for them. So they're going to make sure it happens. Whereas self-publishing, a lot of that work is in your own hands. Yeah. But I mean, even even that's a lot easier, you know, it's a lot easier to get a, you know, to get a nice looking product out more so Mm -hmm. than it has been in the past. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you're writing fiction, like you, there are all sorts of places to have like pre-made book covers that you can buy for, you know, mm. at like at most like a couple hundred dollars or something. And like, if you look mm. enough, like you'll find something that matches like what you, like what you want. Like, I think when I republished, um, walls of Dalgorod and Morona's law, those are both with like pre-made covers. And wow. I like them. I like them better than the covers I had on the, the original, the original books. And even like, as far as like the marketing and stuff goes, like, I mean, honestly, if you're with like a small press, you're still going to mm-hmm. be doing a lot of the a lot of the marketing because yeah. a lot of small presses just don't have you know the resources to get behind mm-hmm. to get behind a lot of promotional efforts. Um, so even there, mm-hmm. like that, you do get the benefit of. I think the 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 one thing I would say um, the caveat for like maybe wanting to go with like a publisher or something is getting access to editing, mm-hmm. like a good editor. Mm-hmm. But even there, like. I mean, I've had mixed results with working with um, sure. like editors from small presses. Like this, the, my book that just came out, Black Spire, the editing process for that was fantastic. It came out uh-huh. so much better. But then, like previous books I've had come out with like a different publisher, like the editing was a little not sure. great sometimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, you kind of do the best research you can and, you know, and then a lot of it has to do with like what matters to you as a, as a creator. You know, if you're someone that, cause I know there are a lot of people that like, they, they, that aren't, that they don't necessarily want to put out something independently because they feel like they want kind of like that, like, external validation of like a publisher thought this was worth publishing, which like, I, mm, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I get that. I understand. And it's, you know, that's especially if you're, uh, you know, if you're like someone like me, who's like constantly grappling with imposter syndrome, it's like, yeah, 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 it's yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. no, somebody else thought this was good. They thought it was good. Not just me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think like, you know, it's one of those ways in which like creatives, like we're often our own worst enemy. But yeah, it's, I, think, I guess it's like, it's kind of deciding, you know, what, what's important to you and what do you want? You know, for a lot of people, like they would never want to give up the control they have of doing things independently, even though that may come with publishing stuff independently is going to come with all of like the, you know, the tax and such liabilities and stuff that come along with all that, which is like a terrifying, like 800 pound gorilla. That's like just out of yeah. my, just out of my frame of vision that like, I'm yeah. totally worried about, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's all that's all really great stuff. Benjamin, I am so thankful that you were on the show today. 
I you brought some really nice design pieces to the puzzle that we call success to some extent. Why don't you let the folks know at home where they can reach you, talk to you, find your stuff. All the places and links will be in the show notes for you folks who want to click on those things. Sure. So all of my games are released under the name Last Redoubt Games. So there's uh, you can find that on Itch. There's websites www.lastredoubtgames.com, and you can get a lot of like early kind of like demos and stuff or playtest demos that I have posted up there. And then all of my author stuff is under benjaminspruduto.com. And then I'm on all the, the Twitters and Twitters like Ben Spruduto. And there's a, there's also a Last Redoubt Games Twitter. I think it's at, I, I think it's at last underscore Redoubt. <laughs> I, I screwed <laughs> something up with it when I like, I accidentally created it twice and like had to get an underscore in there and like, I don't know, you know how it goes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's, that's where all, all that stuff is. And you can oh and and you can get my books on Amazon. I will say that. <laughs> Just look up Benjamin Sperduto on on Amazon. You can find it there. I know I know none of us like Amazon, but like it's where they are. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Kindle and and stuff. Please, thank you. <laughs> buy 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 everything from this man. Buy everything. Thank you again, Ben, for everyone at home. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Oh, <sighs> getting emotional. Uh, everyone at home listening i hope you learned a bunch i know i have and we will see you next time on the show say bye to the people benjamin Hi, bye 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 all right that's a wrap what a wellspring i am always very impressed and very jealous with those who are crushing it at least in my eyes good luck in all of your creation endeavors benjamin All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Benjamin, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you liked the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way over at ko-fi.com or itch.io. Also, if you are unable to donate, please consider sharing this with the person you thought of while listening to this episode and leave a review. Both of those methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me at JeremyH5 over on Twitter with the hashtag IDidIt. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.